1: Welcome to New Books in Political Science. My name is Heath Brown, and today I'll be talking to one of the editors of the Evangelical Crack-Up, question mark, the future of the Evangelical Republican Coalition. Uh, this edited volume is published by Temple University Press this year. Um, the two editors are Paul Jupe and Ryan Klassen. I have the pleasure to have Paul on the phone. Paul, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, yeah. It's it's a pleasure and uh, uh really enjoyed the book and and uh, have been looking forward to uh, talking to you about it because of just how timely uh, the the findings are, even though this is um, written primarily about the 2016 election election. Before we get to um, the book, uh, maybe you could just introduce yourself a little bit and also your uh, co-editor.
0: Yeah, happy to. Um, so yeah, Paul Joop, um, I teach political science at Denison University, which is just outside of Columbus, Ohio. It's a liberal arts college. i um, been doing that since the Harry Potter series came out. So 1999 is how long I've been there. Um, my co-editor is Ryan Clausen. He's an associate professor at Kent State, and he's been there for uh, maybe about a Decade, I think. Um, yeah, he came from Davis. I came from Washington
1: University in St. Louis. Great, wonderful. Um, the, the The title of the books suggests suggests a change, and so I wanted to start with with looking back uh, at the past a little bit, and so we could set up whether the uh, the question in the title is is uh, come to be, and that is, uh, where was the evangelical movement before the two thousand sixteen election? Maybe you can talk about. Uh, maybe uh, peak, uh, and and also maybe in the more recent past. And so, you know, can you can you uh, do the job of summarizing forty, fifty years of political history in in you know two minutes or so?
0: Yeah, yeah, I'll give it a shot. Well, well, to to start, um, I think it's really important to to note that question mark at the end of the of the first statement. We really intended this to be to be a statement, a declarative statement, um, and of course, the twenty sixteen election really really made us change our punctuation. Uh, so we added that question mark there um, as a as a kind of guiding sense of of what the future might might hold and and kind of where we might probe for uh, for differences from the past. So the the simple answer is that 2016 was absolutely nothing new um, in terms of what evangelicals have been doing for a very long time. and that was quite remarkable to us for for all the reasons I imagine we'll we'll get into. Um, especially the the Republican standard bearer right was was very different than uh, someone that evangelicals have supported in the past. One one of the things I think we want to do is be really careful um, about what exactly what it is that we're talking about. So so we we distinguish between evangelicals, between the evangelical movement, between the Christian right, um, and really this is in some ways kind of a tangled thicket um, uh, that we've been trying to sort out for, for a generation now. So I'd say, just to start with evangelicals, I uh, broadly considered, um, almost regardless of how we measure them, I think they're still at their zenith. Uh, this is still the, the largest number um, of self-identified evangelicals or evangelical denominations uh, that the United States has, has ever seen. There's a really sharp debate about whether their numbers are declining. Some of that is very defensive among people who are evangelical and don't want to see that decline. Um, but also we have, you know, pretty, pretty significant academic debates about, about how we measure, uh, how we sample all these sorts of things. Um, the other question then is about, is about the Christian right and its presence and where it is and its, and its power and this sort of thing like you asked. Um, and again, I think this the answer depends. The answer depends for for Christian right more on your focal length than it does for evangelicals uh, more broadly. So, are we talking about elites? Um, are we talking about people you know in the old days like Pat Robertson and Jerry Falwell? Um, are we talking about organizations? And clearly, there have been multiple generations of organizations that have come and gone. Uh, the first big ones, like Moral Majority, faded uh, within a decade. They were replaced by the Christian Coalition and others, and they also faded after a fairly short time. Um, and at this point, we have a sort of new crop of of organizations uh, that just don't seem to have the same airplay that the old ones did. But we can also think about the Christian right um, in terms of, say, the identification of their followers or the consistent behavior of followers. And here, uh, you know, that consistent behavior has been has been rock solid for about twenty years. Um, the exception, it sort of ironically, is Bill Clinton. But after Bill Clinton, uh, evangelicals support white evangelicals supported Republicans at nearly the same levels they did for for Donald Trump, perhaps a little bit less. Um, so you know, it really hasn't changed very much, and we keep expecting it to change. In fact, there's a fairly hallowed tradition um, of observers proclaiming the demise of the Christian right. Um, and it you know, kind of on clockwork, uh, every 10 to 15 years, you get a new, a new author that says, well, the Christian right is going to fade, it's, it's, demise, it's, in, it's in a demise and decline. So Steve Bruce did this in the early 1990s. And of course, the, the book itself um, took inspiration from an article in 2007 in the New York Times by David Kirkpatrick, uh, exact same title uh no question mark <laughs> so he made this argument that you know those old televangelist mm-hmm. elites had faded there was a new generation that called them new evangelicals uh, that had come up uh, pastors of mega churches. they weren't involved with the christian right they were taking softer stands on social issues and they were emphasizing new issues um like human trafficking for instance the they were taking stances on the environment and all of this suggested that the the Christian right was no longer going to be that that juggernaut of conservative politics that it once was, um, you know. And, and uh, the simple answer, you know, to, to come back to it is that uh, uh, evangelicals have just stuck with the Republican Party regardless of all the rest of that stuff. And so that's kind of where we are. Is is kind of you know we see some of the fundamentals of the things that political scientists care about about organization and elites and. Uh, communication and agendas, and we keep expecting that uh, the voter behavior is going to follow suit, and then it and then it kind of doesn't.
1: Now, now one of the things in when you when you uh, read one of these kinds of book and, and edited volume uh, is is uh, you know how how the group came together, and I wonder if you could talk a little bit. Um, uh, you've you've sort of alluded to what some of the germ of the idea of the book, uh, where that came from, but, but what about the, this group you put together, uh, a couple of them I've had the chance to have on the podcast in the past. Um, but this sure looks like, uh, the, the, the dream list of, of people working at the intersection of religion and politics. So what's the, uh, what's the organization of this group of scholars?
0: Well, uh, you know, it really, the, the book took inspiration from that Kirkpatrick article. I saw it back in 2007 and I thought it was really fascinating. Um, because of how it resonated with all the things that I'm really interested in in studying, and so my interest in this volume started about then, and I started chipping away at it in a number of different ways that I could elaborate. If we run out, if we run out of other things to talk about, I can talk about that sort of thing. Um, but it really took it took steam as we got closer to 2016, um, and really took off once we saw that Trump was going to be the nominee. And you know, it just seemed like the perfect storm of of getting together some of the things that that I've been concerned about. Uh, Ryan Clausen just had a book come out a couple years ago from uh, Cambridge University Press that that was dealing with some of the same issues. Um, and then we realized that you know, obviously, there's a lot of other people who have been doing uh, you know work in the same area, and they sh- they I'm sure they would be willing to, to contribute something about activists and Latinos and Legal organizations, and you know, you name it—the um, states, all the rest. And so, you know, I just basically just started asking some of the usual suspects, and then, and then the, the really wonderful thing for me is that uh, as an editor of Politics and Religion, the journal, um, I just had this eagle eye view of the rest of the, you know, basically the subfield and who was doing what. So, I was able to, to target some people that I think otherwise would have been under my radar screen or just outside of my radar screen. So. Um, just ran across a, a bunch of really talented folks um, doing some really interesting works work that that kind of frame the entire entire question um, for us.
1: Now, now you're a uh, an editor of the book, but you're also a writer uh, of of um, a couple of chapters. Um, in in one of the chapters that you wrote, uh, you and co-authors conducted an experiment um, to to uh, test some of these questions about uh, the 2016 election, uh, Donald Trump and, and the, the various, uh, uh, groups that you, you've, uh, already described. I wonder if you could talk about that experiment and, and what you found.
0: Yeah, I'd love to. Um, so this is with the indefatigable Brian Calfano at the University of Cincinnati, a uh, long time author since, uh, actually since 2007. Um. We've sort of always been interested in uh, messages that cut against what are traditional messages in a group. So if you think, you know, trying trying to disentangle uh, evangelicals from opposition to abortion or gay rights is is kind of a fraught uh, sort of subject these days. We just can't figure out what came first, right? But sometimes there are some novel arguments that pop up, and and of course in 2016, you know, you can't avoid. Uh, the, the analytical value of the never Trump arguments. So here are evangelicals who are arguing that the Republican standard bearer is, is somehow falling short of, of earning their, earning their support. So I'd actually done an experiment and uh, the results got in the monkey cage uh, from some, some September data. And we found using some, some language, actually from a former, or he is a political scientist, uh, political science PhD, now writes for the Christian Post, Nap Nasworth, and he argued that some of Trump's appeals to evangelicals were satanic. And I thought that was just super fun, so we did an experiment with that, and we found that that, uh, evangelicals actually liked Trump less when they heard that argument. And so Brian and I were were really curious to see if that was still true by late October, and so that's the frame. Um, Could never-Trump arguments still be persuasive as Election Day approaches? Uh, we did a we did a survey. Um, it was only among white Christians, so we had evangelicals, mainliners, Catholics, and we used a Christianity Today op-ed, um, which had really amped up credible Christian cues. I mean, aside from being Christianity Today, which is an evangelical publication, um, it cited the Bible passage. It's it, it really emphasized uh, some of the core values that you know that we put religion first over over our earthly choices. This sort of stuff. And the other, the other kind of component, that so that was consistent across, everybody got that message. And then we kind of varied some of the other, other little bits. And one of the more important ones was gender. So some of the voices that were arguing both for and against Trump were, were women. Um, you know, very prominent folks like Paula White. She's on the cover of, of the book and what a, in my favorite image on, on a cover of a book so far um she she was a supporter of trump, but there were also uh, uh women uh on Twitter and elsewhere who were uh critical of trump so you know obviously evangelicals have a, a maybe a tense relationship with uh with gender equality we'll say but clearly there's an emerging trend of more women who are who are uh, leaders in the in the movement. So we are curious what the kind of message a uh, Never Trump message by a woman would do uh, versus from a from a man. So the the results uh, they're a little complex, of course, as as they are. Um, there is a real world out there, right? But here are a few a few highlights. Uh, men reacted negatively to a female Never Trump elite. So when they heard a message saying that you know we should we should keep our support from from Donald Trump for religious reasons. Uh, they expressed more favorability toward Donald Trump. When we also um included so so basically the the result here is that men were are much more negative to messages that they should place their religion before their partisanship. I would say that's the that's the simple conclusion here. Um and, and that that really comports so I just had Lily Mason in for a talk yesterday. And so maybe this is just on my brain, but but one of the things that she argues is um, is that overlapping identities are going to serve to to both increase polarization um, and make people more resistant to countervailing claims, right? And that's exactly what we're seeing here: is that male Republican evangelicals are reacting quite negatively to messages that they sh- they should rethink those views a little bit. So yeah, it's, it's it's really really interesting interesting view. And women were just not reactive at all to to any of the the manipulations we tried. So that was, that's pretty interesting.
1: Yeah. And, and, you know, many of the articles in, in the book, including uh, the one you just described, um, you know, they, maybe they are not completely surprising, but they sure do answer a lot of questions that, uh, that people have had about the election. And there's this seeming paradox uh, about Donald Trump and, and uh, evangelical voters. Now, in addition to being a a, a chapter author, you're also the editor, co-editor of the book. Uh, I wonder if you can, um, you know, point to one of the chapters that stands out to you for what uh, surprised you about the findings. Um, that uh, was counter to what you expected, uh, either when you planned out the book or, or maybe as the as the election uh, came and went. Uh, so, uh, is there something in here that uh, that stuck out to you?
0: Uh, absolutely. I mean, there's there are tons of things um, that I just wasn't quite sure exactly exactly what they were going to find. I think in some ways the the authors were were interested, you know, interested too, and and I wouldn't say shocked necessarily, but uh, they they did provide some interesting findings. Um, yeah, so and I'll I'll, I'll describe a, a tension I think, and this is one of the things that really emerged when I taught this. I taught the chapters while they were in press. Um, I guess I can do that because I'm the editor. I had <laughs> I had prepress copies, um, but it was the tension between Kevin Denbulp's chapter that he called the challenge of pluralism. And then Andy Lewis's chapter, which came right after, um, called Divided Over Rights. And so one of the things that, that Kevin does is he, he, thinks, he thinks a little bit about uh, which evangelical elites we should talk about, and he decides to focus on those involved with a political party. So this kind of uh, coincides with the new thinking about political parties that they're really coalitions of, of interest groups and elites and this sort of thing. And so he looks at evangelicals who are, who are especially prominent on platform writing committees um, uh, for the party since the since the 1980s. And one of the things that he finds is an increasing rejection of pluralism, or put another way, um, they're using much more strident, much more religious language and much more particularistic religious language. So over time, they're becoming less, uh, less pluralistic right, um, and rejecting pluralism. And I thought that was, that was interesting. I mean, that, that resonates, I think, with, with some of my stereotypes of, but I haven't read the Republican platform, just like uh, the, the party, the party uh, nominees haven't often read the platform either. So the tension then, um, since they're moving toward away from pluralism at the party level, Andy Lewis is finding at the exact same time that evangelicals are becoming more tolerant. They're becoming more tolerant of groups that they, you know, often dislike, like, uh, as described in the General Social Survey, homosexuals and atheists, um, uh, racists and others. So they're becoming more tolerant over time, uh, at the same time that party elites appear to be becoming sort of less tolerant. Um, and I thought that was a really kind of profound uh, kind of tension for us to, to start working through. I don't know that I can. I can necessarily answer exactly why that's true. Um, The authors don't either. But there's a great conversation to be had here. I mean, maybe some of it is about the lack of coordination that can be had across the entire movement. I mean, it's a really fractured uh, set of folks. Uh, They don't sit down and plan plan out. I think exactly how they're going to run their politics. Perhaps this is some of what they can get away with in different different uh, institutional platforms. So if they're, if they're around the platform writing committee, they pretty much have carte blanche to say what they want. If they're in a courtroom that's arguing about, uh, about free speech and about uh, religious liberties and these sorts of things, maybe they, they have to take a different stance that's more inclusive. Um, and certainly the, the trend over time for evangelicals that Andy Lewis talks about in his book that, and on this podcast. Uh, is that you know evangelicals have been minorities with regard to abortion politics. Perhaps the centerpiece of of their of their uh, political agenda over time, and that kind of pushes them to to consider um, just what minorities need to survive politically in a democratic society. So there's some really interesting um, important trends that that get worked out in the tension between those two chapters
1: not to simplify too much uh, the the purpose of the book, but, but how do you answer this question that's asked in the title, the evangelical crack up uh, has, was, was the crackup that you maybe anticipated come, come to bear or, or how do you answer that, that, that question that, that you yourself ask?
0: Yeah. Um, yeah. We talked a lot about this. Uh, unfortunately, the Midwest MPSA meeting gives us lots of opportunities over beers to, to talk about <laughs> these sorts of issues. So we, so we did, and, and this is one of the one of the reasons why we added the, the question mark. Um, what what we I think I'll just speak for myself, um, since I'm the only one on this podcast and nobody can correct me. I'll say that the the crack up for me is the idea that values come first. So we had this this very long-standing notion in in I think the religion and politics subfield that Religion comes before politics. It's you know a socialization tool that it sets your worldview. That people are very committed to a set of beliefs and values, and that these are going to drive your your political behavior in consistent ways. And there's certainly lots of stories that you can tell that 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 emphasize those connections. Um, you know, given given the signals that Donald Trump sends out in in 2016 um and the the kind of compromises with language and values that evangelical elites um had to take it's just remarkable um how folks are willing to twist twist those kind of core uh core commitments to justify political choices um there's certainly lots of other research that kind of pushes us in that direction too but i'll just kind of turn to, to what clyde wilcox had to say so the The venerable observer of evangelicals and and politics uh, said at some point during the 2016 election on Facebook um, that I just don't know evangelicals anymore. And I I think that's the crack up here is that we're finding that, you know, even if a credible evangelical elite comes out and says, we we should take a step back, we probably shouldn't offer unqualified support to, to this candidate. Um, there will be a, a mass movement that will, that will try to try to remove that person from their office. Um, they, they will be not be seen as credible. They will be rejected. They will be spurned in many ways. Um, and that, I think, it's the, is the crack-up that, that emerges out of the 2016 election.
1: Yeah, again, the, the title of the book, The Evangelical Crack-Up, The Future of the Evangelical Republican Coalition, published by Temple University Press. Paul uh, Jupe and Ryan Klassen are the authors. Paul, thank you so much for your time today.
0: You're so welcome. It
1: was a pleasure.